This is Northwest This Week with your host, Mark Christopher. Hi, it's good to be with you once again. You know, even though I'm a part of the team here 24-7 at Northwest News Radio, there are stories I even miss. So just to make sure we're all caught up, we made this program as a podcast and decided to put it on air as well. So you're about to hear top stories of the week ending for March the 4th as collected by our reporters, our news anchors, and our editors. And we're glad you found this program. We hope you'll tell your friends, your neighbors, and your coworkers that they too can catch up. Just ahead among the stories, bird flu and drought concerns reappear. A local study on the effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccine. And also the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office appears to be making progress on filling some vacant positions. These are just some of the stories again for the week ending March the 4th. Time to get you caught up. And right as we began the week, we learned there's a growing concern about bird flu across the globe, including here in our state. A commercial farm in Franklin County had to euthanize a million chickens back in December. Global bird flu has led to egg shortages. The Peninsula Daily News reports a health officer for Jefferson County told the Board of Health last week that the county saw six wild birds infected and two backyard flocks. Dr. Scott Hensley is an influenza research expert at the University of Pennsylvania and spoke last week with PBS news hour. This is alarming. What we're afraid is that the virus might start changing. It might undergo acquiring different substitutions that enable better replication in these mammals. And we're afraid that some of those same substitutions might enable the virus then to attach to human cells more effectively. According to the CDC, the current strain of avian flu, H5N1, has been detected in foxes, bobcats, and feral cats and dogs. Carleen Johnson, Northwest News Radio. A sizable portion of our state is still in severe droughts, but will continue to bank water in the Cascade Mountains, as Ryan Harris found this. La Nina is supposed to mean a wetter and colder winter for the Pacific Northwest, but it's been California getting hammered or reaping the benefits, while meteorologists say we've barely kept pace with normal. Brent Bauer with the National Weather Service says our cooler-than-normal temperatures likely prevented Washington from dropping below normal. It's helped the snowpack, particularly on the west side of the Cascades, because it's it's been colder and we've gotten more snow and, and also it's helped preserve it by keeping it cold and keeping it locked up in snow and ice. That lockup is key since snowpack is at least 60% of our water supply and Bauer says what's on tap for March will keep building on that. Cooler than normal and wetter than normal really pretty much throughout Pacific Northwest. That severe drought persisting in central and southwest Washington is really more the low middle end of the drought gauge and like the entire west is an improvement from where we've been. Ryan Harris, Northwest West News Radio. A Pierce County Dam owner has pleaded guilty to environmental crime. Electron Hydro LLC and its owner pleaded guilty to operating an unlawful hydraulic project that allowed toxic debris to flow into the Puyallup River for two weeks in June 2020. The company faces $1 million in fines and restitution, and owner Tom Fisher faces two years of probation. If approved, the state attorney general's office believes this is the largest fine and restitution payment paid for an environmental crime in the state's history. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. Now for this next story, you would think it's an episode out of the TV series Yellowstone if you're a fan. If you've ever wished you could legally bury a deceased family member in your own backyard, your own property, new legislation could make that possible. It's a tradition as old and honorable as the founding of the West, according to State Representative Jim Walsh, Republican from Aberdeen. One of the great traditions of living in the West is the ability to bury your family and when the time comes yourself 
on private land that you own or your family owns. State law has long held that legal burials may be conducted only by a legally registered cemetery corporation. The new law would not grant the right to run a commercial cemetery in your backyard. It clearly states that the family burial plot is exactly that, a small section of privately owned land that complies with all usual guidelines and use restrictions for burying family members. The full House likes this bill. It voted 95 to nothing to advance it to the state Senate. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. I'm Mark Christopher, and again, we're helping you catch up to the top stories of the past week here, ending for the week of March the 4th. It's Northwest News this week. If you block the sun, Earth would be plunged into darkness with potentially catastrophic consequences, as we learned in this 1995 episode of The Simpsons. Imagine it, Smithers. Electrical lights and heaters running all day long. But, sir, every plant and tree will die. Uh, Owls will deafen us with incessant hooting. Uh, The town's sundial will be useless. But what if you just limit how much sunlight comes through the atmosphere? Could it halt climate change? The idea of solar geoengineering may be attractive, but the U.S. intelligence community worries it could lead to war. Michael Birnbaum is with the Washington Post and took a further look at this information and spoke with our own Taylor Van Size, sharing this with our listeners. Michael, first explain how a nation would go about the solar geoengineering process. It hasn't been done before, and scientists are still researching it. But the basic idea seems pretty clear. They'd take some airplanes, they'd have uh, they'd spray sulfur out the back of the airplanes, and that sulfur would go up into the stratosphere and reflect some of the power of the sun back upward. And so it, 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 it would sort of be like simulating a, a really big volcanic explosion that would reduce the, the power of the sun all around the world. And as we know from uh, our experience with Mount St. Helens here in the Northwest, when the volcano goes, it doesn't just stay ash overhead. It goes all around the world, right? So that presumably would be the case with this uh, this sulfur that's being sprayed about. That's exactly right. So you need a whole bunch of airplanes, you need a whole bunch of sulfur, but it's it's not impossibly large. And so it seems like it probably is a technique that could work if some country or uh, private citizen decide to do it at some point. But why does the U.S. intelligence community think this could lead to com- conflict? What, what sort of exercise did they run to arrive at that conclusion? So um, the basic idea is that doing this could, could reduce global temperatures by a couple of degrees on average. But it would do all sorts of strange things to uh, the you know, global climate. It could uh, reorient the pattern of rainfall, make monsoons go to different places, you know, make crops uh, not grow as well because they're not getting as much sunlight, could increase rainfall in some places, decrease it in others. And the worry that the U.S. intelligence community has is that without some sort of global framework for discussing how to use this, one country could decide to do it, for example, in the middle of a terrible heat wave that's killing a lot of their citizens that they feel as though they need to take matters into their own hands, a different country could think, hey, that's a terrible idea. If they're suffering crop failures or, or you know, other negative consequences, and the, the worry is that conflict could result. And so the U.S. intelligence community uh, did an exercise last year in which they kind of ran through the scenario. They pretended just this Uh, thing happened, and they went through to to try to figure out what they could do to minimize the risk of conflict. 
Is any nation ready to implement solar geoengineering? Well, there are several working on that question. You can find out much more about that online at WashingtonPost.com in this latest from Michael Birnbaum. As the climate warms in the Pacific Northwest, we might see an increased number of bears all of a sudden. Jeff Poljula explains. Research at the University of Washington has found that climate change appears to be beneficial to certain species, including the grizzly bear. Specifically, the amount of usable habitat for the grizzly is expected to increase, raising the carrying capacity or the number of bears the environment can safely handle. Scientists say climate change will bring more wildfires, which create openings in the tree canopy, allowing certain plants to grow back more quickly. Among them, huckleberry, cow parsnip, and horsetail, all plants grizzlies like to eat. Jeff Pogel on Northwest News Radio. In our next segment, a Tacoma Pharmacy makes settlement accused of not complying with controlled substances. And what about these Oregon highway tolls we've been telling you? We have an update. But let's continue here with scientists of Washington State University have discovered a unique way to help queen honeybees survive. It's called queen banking. It has to do with storing excess queens in small cages. This is typically done from spring to fall so that there are enough queens available to help honeybees stay viable. The problem comes when it's too hot. The vast majority of U.S. queen producers are based in California, where rising temperatures and wildfires are becoming more common. Researchers found by refrigerating the bees in very cold temperatures indoors, it can help strengthen honeybee survival. Since queens can't be reproduced in hot temperatures, banking them in this way helps eliminate loss. In the study, in banks of 100 or more bees, 78% of queens survived six weeks of storage compared to 62% in an outdoor group. Scientists found the cold queens showed good health and needed less maintenance. Marina Rockinger, Northwest News Radio. You're listening to Northwest News This Week, ending for the week of March the 4th. Stay with us. You're listening to Northwest This Week. Now, for more of our catch-up efforts for you here at Northwest News this week, a local study finds that past COVID infections give you good protection against the worst of the disease, but that a yearly shot is still the best protection. The latest report from UW's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation looked at studies from around the world, which show that a COVID infection gives you around 90% protection from severe disease and death for at least 10 months, regardless of the variant. That protection from reinfection is much lower at around 36%. But IHME's Dr. Christopher Murray says they found the protection is as good or better than from two doses of any of the vaccines. Murray says even though the disease from the Omicron variant is less severe... As we've seen in China or in Hong Kong, if you have not been infected and not ever been vaccinated, then Omicron can certainly kill. And so you do want to maintain immunity through keeping boosters up. So Murray says it looks like an annual COVID shot is appropriate and that it's certainly safer than taking your chances with a severe COVID infection. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. You remember ivermectin, right? At one point, a group of doctors claiming the anti-parasite drug used largely in animals was an effective treatment for COVID-19. We now know that's not true, yet we're now hearing similar claims of ivermectin's effectiveness in fighting the flu and even RSV. A story appearing in the Washington Post. Here's what we learned. Lauren, tell us again about who is making this claim and what they're saying about ivermectin and the flu and RSV. So the frontline COVID-19 critical care alliance is this group of doctors that rose to prominence during the pandemic as they promoted ivermectin as a, as a quote-unquote miracle drug for ivermectin. So they said, uh, one of their founders said in a Senate hearing, but as the scientific evidence emerged that it, it was ineffective as a treatment. 
they've continued to still promote ivermectin for COVID and now have started posting on their website these, quote, treatment protocols that promote ivermectin for other respiratory diseases like the flu and RSV. And, and I want to be clear to say that the CDC expressly said after asked about this that there is no medical reason for that and that they do not recommend that and that they do not feel like there's evidence that supports that. And yet, of course, you can find patients who do remain convinced despite these warnings. Yes, there are. You know, they, what they've said to us is that they have had these treatment protocols for, for COVID, flu, and RSV as a whole, all of them, downloaded, you know, over a million times. And you see plenty of traffic to the actual RSV and flu sites as well. Uh, you know, I think there are a fair amount of people that have really, they, they're followers, so to speak, of this alliance. They believe that ivermectin works. They, they don't believe the government warnings about it. They say that that's a big pharma lie. And, you know, now these people are now promoting an alternate use of it for for something where they, they don't have clinical data to support it. Of course, these doctors who are making these claims about ivermectin are presumably people of science. What's driving them to continue to make these claims? You know, you'd have to ask them what is driving them to continue to make it. But the bottom line is, is that there are still people across the U.S. that are basing their medical decisions on that recommendation. And, you know, we're going to continue to see what ends up happening as that continues. And of course, it sounds as though these doctors are also facing some pressure within their own industry over these claims that they're making. They are. They have come under threat from the medical establishment. To the co-founders, their internal medicine certification has been threatened to potentially be revoked for quote-unquote spreading misinformation. You know, some of the other doctors that are clinical advisors or founding members are facing complaints against their medical licenses. You know, there is some backlash. But as a whole, most doctors who have spread misinformation during the pandemic have not faced accountability for that. Um, There's been very limited sanctions by medical boards across the country. And so, you know, we'll see how that continues to play out. That's Lauren Weber, and you can read much more on this online. Just go to WashingtonPost.com. Bill O'Neill there of Northwest News Radio. As we continue, Northwest News this week, all the top stories you might have missed for the week ending March the 4th. The list of essential health benefits covered by the Affordable Care Act will likely grow in our state. That's under legislation now edging toward the finish line. The details differ from plan to plan, but Washington has agreed. Patients who buy coverage through the exchange know that there is a core set of essential health benefits that will be covered under every health plan. That's Stephanie Simpson testifying in favor of Senate Bill 5538. It would expand the list of essential benefits from the existing 10 to 15. The decision of what should be covered is a complicated one. The five essential services to be added include hearing aids, fertility services, and three related to breast cancer care, biomarker testing, preventative mastectomies, and MRI screening. The existing list already includes hospital care, mental health care, prescription drugs, and maternity and newborn care. And this bill is the next step in continuing to make sure that people have access to quality health coverage. The bill has already passed the state Senate. House approval would send it to the governor's desk. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Pharmaceutical giant Pfizer is reportedly in talks with the largest biotech company here in Seattle, John Lobertini, digging into this story this past week. Seijin is an acquisition target for a who's who of big pharma because analysts forecast booming sales on the FDA approval of multiple cancer drugs. Angelique Kimlani is with Yahoo Finance. 
So really a lot going on with Sejan's pipeline, which is why it's of interest to all these companies. It's a late stage. A company does have a couple products that are bringing in some revenue, does have fast track approvals. That's where Pfizer comes in. The company wants to expand its development of cancer drugs, and it has hundreds of billions of dollars to spend from COVID-19 products. They also do have an internal R&D structure, but they have indicated that there are certain ones that they don't necessarily want to make the investments into. They're looking externally. Acquisition talks with Merck, another big drug maker, fell apart last summer after the FTC said it would launch an antitrust investigation. Sejan, valued at $30 billion, employs 1,800 people in Seattle and announced plans last year to build a 270,000 square foot manufacturing plant. John Libertini, Northwest News Radio. A Tacoma pharmacy has agreed to pay a settlement after being accused of not complying with the Controlled Substances Act. Drug Enforcement Administration inspections found Lincoln Pharmacy failed to track controlled substances, failed to secure some of those substances, and failed to keep its electronic private key secure. The U.S. Attorney's Office and the pharmacy agreed on an $80,000 settlement, but Lincoln Pharmacy does not claim any liability. The case is one of three resulting from DEA efforts to prevent pharmacies from filling prescriptions written by providers without prescribing authority. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. Some commuter news coming up in our next segment. And the Oregon Highway Department lacking experience in tolling their roads, but they're learning fast, we'll explain. And here for you now, corrections officers who sexually abuse inmates will spend a lot more time behind bars under a bill that has passed out of the state Senate. Details now from Carlene Johnson of Northwest News Radio. Senator Mike Padden's measure allows a prison term of 10 years instead of the current five-year maximum sentence. It passed unanimously out of the full Senate. The power differential is so much that there can be no consent. And I think there is a greater obligation, a greater duty for law enforcement to behave in a proper manner. The legislation was spurred by the story of a Forks jail guard who served just over a year in prison after sexually assaulting four women including 23-year-old Kimberly Bender, who died by suicide in her jail cell in 2019 after reporting the guard was repeatedly sexually assaulting and tormenting her. She left a little boy who was now six years old. The House will take up this measure next. Carlene Johnson, Northwest News Radio. The stories you might have missed. You have a busy schedule. Maybe you only got a headline. That's why we bring you Northwest News this week, each and every week at this very time. Also, as a podcast, you can find that at nwnewsradio.com. We're back after this. You're listening to Northwest This Week with Mark Christopher. Welcome back. In Snohomish County, there are signs of progress. A sheriff's department scuffles to fill more than 100 job vacancies. New and improved is the sales pitch from Sheriff Adam Fortney. We have to be thinking outside the box and doing things differently. Just because it's the way we've done it for the last 20, 30 years, it doesn't make it the right way to be doing it today. Pairing deputies with embedded social workers has become a job perk and a safety net for deputies sometimes caught on the wrong end of a psychiatric episode. County Executive Dave Summers. I think these kinds of programs were really marrying the two help attract good candidates. In October, the sheriff reported 52 vacancies in law enforcement and 50 more in correct. Since then, new hires are up about 10%, but Fortney remains on the offensive. We set hiring records in 2021 and 2022, but I think 2023 is looking up for all of public safety in the state of Washington. Many have tried hiring bonuses. Cops are in high demand, but Snohomish County brokered a new contract instead with a 19.5% pay raise and lucrative incentives. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. 
Bank rates annual best and worst metros for first-time homebuyers study has been released, and our area is on that list. Where does it stand? For more on this, Tom Hutler of Northwest News Radio spoke with a bank rate analyst. To answer the question, uh, Seattle ranks 36th among the, the 50 largest metro areas. Um, so, you know, ahead of a lot of the other West Coast metro areas, uh, especially places in California, uh, but behind uh, 35 other metro areas around the country. Tell us about the parameters of this study and how the rankings were determined. So we looked at four broad categories, uh, affordability, uh, job market, uh, market tightness, which just means uh, how hard or easy it is to buy a house, and then uh, kind of a, a broad ranking of wellness and culture. And so you could probably guess Seattle did well in three of those four areas, but not well at all in affordability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think everybody listening will attest to that. Uh, Austin took the top spot, right? And D.C. was last. Tell us about uh, those markets and what made them attractive or unattractive. Yeah, Austin did take the, the top spot, which was a bit of a surprise because Austin has some of the same affordability um, issues that, uh, that other tech hubs have. Uh, but Austin is more affordable than, than places like Seattle and Silicon Valley. And a lot of uh, the big tech companies have been moving jobs there. So Austin was, was brought down a bit by its affordability rank, but it was really helped by its job market um, and, and by the, the other factors uh, that we looked at. Jeff, you note that uh, with virtual workplaces now becoming more standard, it's possible to make a move to a less expensive place to live. Exactly. And we've seen a, a lot of that over the past few years. Um, workers who had been in Seattle or, or San Francisco because they needed to be near a job have been taking their big city paychecks to a less expensive market. And so we've seen a resorting of the U.S. population. We've seen population losses in some of the really expensive areas and a lot of population growth in places like Nevada, Arizona, Texas, Florida. Jeff, great to talk with you, and thanks for your insight into that study. And you can get the entire study at Bankrate.com. Now let's move on to real estate. If you are shopping for a new home, Manda Factor says prices are down again. Home prices in the U.S. declined for a sixth straight month, sending a key index of values down 2.7% from the peak in June. This is according to the S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller report. Seattle is among the fastest cooling housing markets. Seattle-area home prices dipped 1.8% from November to December. That's the seventh consecutive month of decline. According to the Seattle Times, the index tracks single-family home prices in Kings, Snohomish, and Pierce counties and lags by two months. Manda Factor, Northwest News Radio. The city of Everett has a plan to replace falling trees. It's a one-for-one change. For each tree that falls or dies, the city will plant a replacement. Now, much of the concern is along Colby Avenue, where dozens of giant American sycamores and London plane trees line the median. But strong winds and disease have knocked some of them down. The Everett Herald reports the replacements all have trunks of at least five inches in diameter. The city is also taking a census of every tree on city property, and that could cover up to 3,500 trees. Jeff Pogela, Northwest News Radio. Now for that stretch of Highway 99 that could one day be gone. It's in the South Park area. Marina Rockinger explaining how the federal government might help. A grassroots effort to take out part of Highway 99 near the South Seattle neighborhood has gained some financial help from the Biden administration. According to the Seattle Times, advocates of removing the almost one-mile stretch say it would improve the area as the highway runs through the neighborhood affecting air quality and causing excess noise. The $1.6 million grant is part of a trillion-dollar infrastructure law and will fund the cost of a study of what it would take to make the proposed changes. Port of Seattle officials say they're interested in 
how the change could affect moving freight through the area. Marina Rockinger, Northwest News Radio. The Oregon Highway Department has far less experience in tolling their roads than what we're able to accomplish here in our state, but they're learning fast. Portland area commuting could soon become a pricey proposition. Let's give a listen. For ODOT, the Oregon Transportation Department, the eye-opener has been proposed tolls on the upcoming new I-5 bridge between Washington and Oregon. Not yet set, but likely to top $5 per trip. Although the project is a joint effort between the two states, Oregon State Senator Lynn Findley has suggested Washington administer the bridge tolls. We don't have any experience in tolling. Maybe not, but they're catching on. The transportation blog cityobservatory.org has obtained ODOT documents revealing Oregon plans to impose tolls on multiple commuter routes between Vancouver and the South Portland suburbs, possibly resulting in a daily round-trip commute costing up to $30. Oregon State Senator Lou Frederick hopes Washington can share any issues it has had with tolling State Route 520, I-405, and the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. Not just the technical ones, the mechanistic ones, but the impact on the communities directly involved in the whole tolling situation. One issue is equity. Transportation experts disagree over whether tolls fall more heavily on low-income workers who often drive long distances to in-city jobs or on high earners who are more likely to drive during peak tolling hours. In southwest Washington, Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. This past week's 22nd anniversary of the Nisqually earthquake was seen by some as an opportunity to prepare yourself for the next big shaker. The 2001 Nisqually quake left 400 people hurt and a lot more frightened, many of them not ready for the chance they might be on their own for days. So the first advice is to have water, food for yourself and pets, medication, and a battery-operated radio so that when your power goes out, you can tune to Northwest News Radio to keep you informed. In a quake, our first instinct is to run, says Northwest Insurance Council President Kenton Brine. And that's not recommended. Get yourself under something sturdy and wait for the shaking to stop. That's when it's time to assess the damage. A job Brian says would be easier if you had an inventory of the things in your home so you're not sorting them out after a quake or wildfire. Wildfire destroys everything and there's nothing there to even look at. In the case of an earthquake, you might still be able to see things inside your home, but you may not be able to get back in there. Brian also reminds you your home insurance policy doesn't cover quakes or flooding caused by a tsunami, but he says it's usually not too expensive to add that coverage. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Meanwhile, a former Seattle deputy mayor headed to the Biden administration. Appointed by President Joe Biden, Kendi Yamaguchi will be joining the Department of Commerce as a Deputy Assistant Secretary in the International Trade Association. The Seattle Times reports she will oversee a team of about 300 helping U.S. businesses with exports and working to attract foreign investment. Yamaguchi served as Seattle Mayor Bruce Harold's Deputy Mayor and previously served in the Snohomish County Executive's Office and as a State Assistant Attorney General. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. The top stories of the week ending March the 4th. Welcome to Northwest News this week. We continue in a moment. You're listening to Northwest This Week and now Mark Christopher. 
As we grab more stories here for the week ending March the 4th here from our reporters, news anchors, and editors, a bill to require a State Department of Health license to conduct music therapy has passed a major milestone in the State House. Music therapists are nationally board certified after going through four and a half years of training at Seattle Pacific University, the state's only training program. House Bill 1247's prime sponsor, Democrat Julia Reed, represents SPU and says the licenses are important when you see what happens when performers or those not trained engage in music therapy. Those instances can result in injury and in some cases we heard about even death. There are significant powers that this training can provide and it's very important that they be supported by folks who have proper training, proper licensure. Republican Representative Joe Schmick of Colfax says the Department of Health originally said this type of license was not necessary. I've been told they no longer hold that position but they hadn't bothered to let us know but for the time being I'll, I'll vote no and that's the reason why. The 82-13 vote sends the bill over to the state senate. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Washingtonians are in danger of falling off a hunger cliff, we found out. That's what a state representative is saying as the House approves her call for extra food assistance. More than a million Washingtonians rely on some kind of food-related benefit, according to State Representative Mia Gregerson, Democrat from SeaTac. We can call that a, a hunger cliff uh, for purposes today. Um, and this legislation is really trying to make sure that we provide those dollars that are necessary to keep food on the food bank shelves. Today brings the end of additional COVID-related SNAP payments, often called food stamps. Gregerson's bill would provide an additional $28 million in food assistance as soon as April to replace what Washington is losing in SNAP benefits. If you agree with me that no one should be in pain or suffering in this state, and this is something that we can do together. Following that appeal Monday, the House unanimously approved the stopgap measure designed to fence off the hunger cliff until the next state budget passes in July. It goes next to the state Senate for final approval. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. The investigation continues to unfold in Pierce County around two ransomware attacks now just coming to light. A Russia-based group called Lockbit threatened to leak the personal information of Pierce Transit customers, contracts, postal correspondence, and non-disclosure agreements if a ransom wasn't paid. That was February 15th, the day after a ransomware incident temporarily disrupted some systems. This according to the News Tribune. The city of Lakewood says it suffered technical glitches in its computer system in late December. Investigations continue in both cases. Lockbit claims its take from Pierce Transit was confidential data and about 300 gigabytes from Lakewood. A threat analyst says ransomware attacks on U.S. governments almost doubled in 2022. It's not known if a ransom was paid in either case. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. The Biden administration has its sights on Google. To that end, Google is hiring teams of former U.S. Department of Justice lawyers in the midst of what is shaping up to be a major regulatory fight. We have a story from The Washington Post, and Tom Hutler asked some questions. It really should be no surprise, I guess, that Google is taking this action, looking for lawyers who may have a little inside intelligence as it tries to battle these antitrust lawsuits. That's right. The first of the antitrust lawsuits against Google was filed by the DOJ under President Trump in 2020. That one accuses Google of monopolizing the online search business. The second one was more recently filed under Biden, and that one targets its lucrative online advertising business. Google is spending big to defend itself against these lawsuits. How are these lawyers available for Google, and what does it say about the Biden administration's antitrust efforts? These agencies have long felt that they are outgunned when it comes to taking on the, some of the world's largest and richest corporations in court. 
The Department of Justice, uh, their antitrust division is now led by Jonathan Cantor. He's one of the new trust busters that Biden has brought into the administration, along with Lena Khan at the Federal Trade Commission. They came in with a mandate to take on the big tech firms, to crack down on their habit of snapping up smaller competitors to, to solidify their dominance and to tackle their potential monopolies in various sectors of the online economy. Um, they have staffed up. They have gotten some legislation passed that will increase their funding. Um, so they are, they're hiring more lawyers. But even so, they're finding that defendants like Google are able to outspend them. Okay. You have to believe other major tech players are keeping a close eye on how this is going to play out. They are. And Google is not the only case that is ongoing. So there is a Federal Trade Commission suit accusing Facebook of monopolizing the personal social networking industry. There uh, was a recent case where the FTC filed to block Facebook parent company Meta from acquiring a VR startup. They said that this is Meta trying to get a chokehold early on on an emerging industry in VR and the metaverse, even though it's not a big industry yet. Uh, They lost that attempt to block that merger, so that one went through. Um, They are still uh, fighting um, uh, an attempt by Microsoft to acquire the gaming company Activision. This is a much larger merger, uh, $67 billion um, acquisition that uh, tries to make Microsoft a top player in the gaming industry in addition to uh, all the other things it does, and that one is still in the court. You can read much more of Will's story online at WashingtonPost.com. Will Aremus from the Washington Post, thanks for joining us. Meanwhile, European Union regulators have extended the deadline for an antitrust decision on Microsoft's acquisition of Activision. Reuters reports that a European Commission filing indicates the deadline has been pushed to April 25th. The antitrust watchdog pre- previously set an April 11th deadline for its decision on the $69 billion deal. Microsoft announced the deal early last year in a move to help it better compete with industry leaders, but has since hit regulatory hurdles in Europe, Britain, and the United States. Kathy O'Shea, Northwest News Radio. Supporters of a hospital in Yakima County hope to buck a national trend and save their local maternity ward. We'll get to that story here in our next segment. Let's continue with this. Do you use two-step authentication on your devices? An explanation how a top cybersecurity official is urging more people to use it. Chances are when you load an app on your device, you have been asked if you want multi-factor authentication or MFA. It's where you're sent a code in order to sign into your account. It's meant to guard against hackers. Many companies offer it, but don't necessarily push their customers to use it, which, according to U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Director Jen Easterly, is problematic. Easterly said during a speech at Carnegie Mellon University that companies like Microsoft and Twitter report their customers have very low MFA adoption rates. Microsoft customers at about 25%, Twitter at fewer than 3%. By contrast, Apple has disclosed 95% of its iCloud users enable MFA. Easterly suggests proposed new legislation could hold software and tech companies accountable for greater cybersecurity efforts. She would like to see companies like Redmond-based Microsoft adopt practices practices to encourage their end users to take steps like MFA to secure their devices and accounts. Marina Rockinger, Northwest News Radio. Getting you all caught up, we are for the stories you might have missed here for the week ending March the 4th. Northwest News This Week continues. 
Thanks for being with us here each and every week. A few more stories we have here to help you catch up. Supporters of a hospital in Yakima County, they're making efforts here to save their local maternity ward. Corbin Hake explains. Late last year in the town of Toppenish, 21 miles southeast of Yakima, the Family Maternity Center at Astria Toppenish Hospital abruptly closed. Like many cash-strapped rural hospitals nationwide, they are dropping labor and delivery care altogether. Expectant mothers are forced to travel, and Tashina Nunez tells the Toppenish City Council during an emergency, a delay of 15 or 20 minutes could be fatal. In a transport to Yakima or Tri-Cities or to Sunnyside that takes 15 minutes, the patient will be dead, both the mother and the child. Now comes a proposal to establish a public health district in Toppenish to fund a maternity ward via property tax revenue. Matthew Ellsworth with the Association of Washington Public Hospital Districts tells KIMA News it won't work. The amount of money that uh, would be raised would not be the, be enough to operate a standalone clinic. The American Hospital Association says about half of rural community hospitals do not provide obstetrics care. Studies show women in rural areas areas face a higher risk of pregnancy-related complications. Corwin Hake, Northwest News Radio. Too often, it seems, the people around us are more concerned with their own wants and needs and maybe not as in tune with helping others, which makes this next story about a couple of incidents that happened over this past weekend. Putting out a fire, pulling someone out of a burning building, it's all in a day's work for Tom Lafferty. The career firefighter has been a hero over and over, and yet simply chalks it up to an honest day's work, which makes what he did this past weekend even more meaningful. It was a day off for Tom. He'd been at the grocery store and was on his way home when he noticed something not quite right in his Portland, Maine neighborhood. He craned his neck to the right as he passed a home. Yep, that's smoke coming from the roof. And yep, even though he was off the clock, instincts kicked in. Just glad I was there because I could recognize the situation and I knew that I could keep a bad situation from getting worse. After making a quick call to 911, the off-duty firefighters started banging on the front door. An elderly woman answered, completely unaware there was smoke coming from her roof. Not only did Lafferty's quick actions save her from injuries, his immediate call got other firefighters there quickly. They were able to limit the damage to the home. Every time you can positively impact someone's life, either by helping them at a fire or taking them to the hospital if they're sick, is a great feeling. And then there's the incident that happened in the Portland just to our south. A wrestling team from Southern Oregon ventured north for the state tournament, only to end up trudging through the snow. Yeah, it took us nine hours. It was a mess, for sure. They watched from their bus at first. It was just craziness. There was just cars getting spinning out, getting stuck, freaking in trees. We were like a couple blocks from our hotel and we couldn't get by because of all the cars. They're all like stuck in the snow. Then coach Jesse Clark made a play call. I told the bus driver to open the door and I was like, give me five wrestlers, let's go. For over three hours, the wrestlers from Illinois Valley High School helped stranded motorists. Helping them get moving and then once you got to move, we move forward. Turn the corner, there's another car. They were definitely appreciative that we, we were willing to help out and not just sit and watch. And it just trailed on for three and a half hours. We just kept jumping out, doing the same thing, jumping out, doing the same thing. It was actually pretty cool. Nice call, coach. I think this sport teaches you an ethic, not only of work, but empathy too. By the way, Coach Clark was named Coach of the Year when the boys finally made it to the tournament. But the bigger reward our firefighter and these wrestlers will tell you was serving the community and going above and beyond. Every time you can positively impact someone's life is a great feeling. Brian Calvert, Northwest News Radio.
All right, let me look here. I think we got them all for the week ending March the 4th here. Northwest News this week, by the way, heard every week here at this time on Northwest News Radio, AM 1000, FM 97.7. You can also catch it at 101.5 HD Channel 2. And as I mentioned, it's a podcast still at nwnewsradio.com, where you'll find other favorites like Politicast, LifeBeat, and Puget Sound Now. And if you enjoy the podcast version, we hope you'll share a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for doing that. Northwest News this week is pretty Produced by Bill O'Neill, editor and tech advisor, and working on all the timing to work on radio and as a podcast. Way to go, Painter Webb. I'm Mark Christopher. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you're enjoying the month of March, and let's hear it for even warmer temperatures. We'll see what happens, and we'll see you next week.